This week on Dig Me Out, Tim and Jay review the self-titled album by Neverland. Bad schlocky blues with bad lyrics, you're not in a good spot. Almost every one of these songs I heard I go, eh, sounds like the Black Crows. Eh, sounds like another band. Um, some of the songwriting holds up better than others. Hello and welcome to another episode of Dig Me Out. I'm your host, Tim Minichi, and joining me as always, my co-host, Mr. Jason Ziak, Jay. We're in episode 148, mm. wrapping up our third season. Only, let's see, 155 will be our year in review. So that means we only have about six more reviews, including this one, left to do. Two of those are going to be suggested reviews. So that leaves us with about four left uh, to pick on our own, assuming that we don't get any more suggestions. So uh, anything you've been waiting for? Anything you've been uh, dying to bust out before the end of the year's up? No, I'm ready for some uh, some folks to bring some stuff to us. Cool. Well, we've got a couple, and we're going to be getting to them uh, pretty soon as well. Oh, and we've also got our, uh, our Facebook poll for uh, – we're going to be doing that one too for uh, benefit albums. So actually, it cuts it down to three, so – the, uh, the picks are slowly drifting away. Only got a few left. But we're going to do a... Uh, this is one that I picked based on some chatter from our commenters uh, when we did the Holy Barbarians album. And there was some talk about the guitar player and the drummer from that band. I'm speaking of uh, Patrick Sugg, who's a guitar player in Holy Barbarians, and Scott Garrett, who was the drummer. And there was some talk about them playing in a band together called Neverland. And so I thought, well, you know, you know what would be cool? Since we can do this, why don't we just go check that Neverland album out? <laughs> and just so happened that you actually had the album. I did. So do you remember where you picked it up from? Cut out, Ben. Cut out, Ben. Um, yeah. I uh, Saw the album the cover? Mo- no, no. You remember the movie Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey? Absolutely. Well, they're featured on the soundtrack. So, in 1991, uh, based on artists like Slaughter, Winger, Kiss, Richie Kotz, and Steve Vai, Faith No More, Megadeth, Primus, and King's X, I went out and bought the soundtrack to Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey. And on that, track number four is Drinking Again by Neverland. And it struck me as pretty different um, at the time. And uh, I liked that song. And uh, sure enough, I think within a year or two of, of, of hearing that was just, you know, flipping through the old cutout bins at uh, Camelot Music or something. <laughs> sure enough, I see the name Neverland. And I pulled it out and uh, bought it for a buck or whatever it was and and uh, got familiar with the record. Does it have the uh, the punch out hole in the spine? It does. Or... Oh yeah, yeah. It's it's full on cut out. I literally cut out like it. Somebody took a double saw and gnawed at it. Nice. So I actually had to go back to the uh, the CD the CD vault here, which I don't normally do, and uh, <laughs> dig this out and dust it off and actually burn it to the to the old computer machine. <laughs> so we're talking about Neverland and their self-titled album from 1991 and uh, that's the album we're going to review 
So why don't we talk about the very brief history of Neverland? History of the band. So I don't know when Neverland formed. They released their first album in 1991 on Interscope, Interscope Records. It features Dean Ortega on lead vocals and percussion. I'm guessing that would be like a tambourine or a shaker or something like that. Uh, Patrick Sugg on guitar and backing vocals. Gary Lee on bass and backing vocals. And Scott Garrett on drums and percussion. They released a second album called Surreal World on Escape Music in 1996. So we have, you know... A connection to not only Holy Barbarians because Sug and Garrett played Holy Barbarians, but and that came out in uh, what was that '96? And then two years prior, Scott Garrett played drums on the self-titled Cult album, which of course featured Ian Asbury. Uh, logically, if the Cult put out an album, and so we've got our third Scott Garrett album, which I think is the artist most featured ever uh, on Dig Me Out. Believe it or not. <laughs> and so it should be. And so it should be, exactly. <laughs> so that's all I know about Neverland and Scott Garrett and Patrick Sugg. Uh, if uh, you'd like to suggest an album for review, please visit us at digmeoutpodcast.com and hit our request review page. So we did get some comments about this. Uh, Joe Royland uh, chimed in, was just spinning the album today. And uh, first he said, Anyway, as previously stated, I love this album. It kind of bridges the gap between the sound of what had just been dominant uh, in hard rock and what was about to happen with grunge as such. It also unfortunately got lost in the shifting tides of the musical landscape. To me, you can tell this album was produced by the same person who would months later do Pearl Jam's 10 album, Tim Palmer. Interesting connection there. Um, I'm going to try not to go into too too much uh, too such lengths as they already did on this record but if i didn't mention it before let me say when this came out in the spring of 91 i was working in a music store at the time and this was one of those albums that everyone there agreed on varied tastes as we all had we all love this album not sure how much you guys might dig it but i can't wait to hear what you have to say about it regardless and then he followed it up with which is spinning the album today and had a few more thoughts on in the sound of the album is huge. The drums in particular sound big. You can also tell this band was formed around Patrick Sugg's guitar playing as every song features a big riff and generally tasty guitar solo. The song Drinking Again still pushes through all the right buttons for me. I can still listen to Sugg's wah-wah drenched solo for hours. I also have one distinct memory. I wrote for a local newspaper at the time, music paper at the time, and I received a cassette copy of this album to review. After the first listen, I was so impressed, I immediately drove to the store where I worked and bought a CD copy. Any album this good, and I had to have the best possible Fidelity, uh, best Fidelity sound copy I could. Plus, even though I essentially already gotten the album for free, I still wanted to support them by buying a copy. Um, Chip Midnight also chimed in. He says, I need to guest host on this one. Chip, uh, we were waiting to hear from you, but you didn't, uh, you didn't talk to us. We were going to have you on, but next time, next time when we do the next Neverland album, you're going to be on it. Uh, he says, feels like 10,000 years passed us by just the other day. I thought I was the only person who knew about this band. How the hell did you pick this one? Well, we explained that. And then uh, Scott Russell Halgram, oh God, did they really look like that? And he's referencing the album cover, and there's definitely an 80s vibe to the, uh, to the album cover. Lots of blousey shirts. Yes, there's a 
Uh, open blousey shirts, long hair. Definitely in that odd crisscross phase of alternative and because it could also be you're not far off from like a Jane's Addiction cover shot. Yep. Yeah. So from like '89. So it's also it's definitely like kind of a confused look. So that's our feedback. That's our history. And we're gonna get into this album. So Jay. Yep. Neverland. Were you happy to travel back to Neverland, or uh, is this a trip you never want to take again? <laughs> well, wait a minute. Didn't I technically cook this record? No. No, you did I not. No, provided. I did. You provided it. I picked it. Plus, I really want you to go first. I, I <laughs> really you want bastard. to hear your. I want to hear what you have to you say about this record. Bastard. Well, first off, I'm gonna. Uh, I think we should clarify the whole production thing because I think that's one of the interesting angles to this record. Um, as far as I can tell here, towards uh, according to the authority that is Wikipedia, Tim Palmer did not produce Pearl Jam's Ten. He mixed it. Ah. Uh, Rick Parishar produced Ten, and Rick also produced. Many other well-known albums of the time, Temple of the Dog, Alice in Chains, Sap, Blind Melon, Pride and Glory, on and on and on. Um, Tim Palmer uh, looks to be mostly a mixer throughout his career, but you've got Mother Love Bone, The Cure, Concrete Blonde, Cutting Crew, Robert Plant, you know, some decent names in there. Yeah. Uh, Catherine Wheel. Hmm. Pearl Jam, Tears for Fears. So I guess that's interesting in that, it, to me, the, the production of this record does sound very much like Pearl Jam's 10. Um, regardless, you know, maybe that's through the mixing. You know, um, it's very reverb heavy, heavy. a um, mm-hmm. lot of delay, a lot of, you know, really big drum sound, um, which is kind of, in, it's, it's fascinating because that's a sound that Pearl Jam, like, obviously made a very clear decision to move away from. They've never, re, you know, at least to my ears, have never revisited that the sound that's on that first record. No, um, both from a, even from a a playing standpoint, and certainly from a um, a production standpoint, they've never gone back there. So it's kind of a, a this is a little interesting time capsule, I think, to go back to and listen to the context of that. It's all, I think the other part of it is that um, what we recently did a um, what episode did we do where we focused on 1991 the couple episodes ago but we kind of broke down like all of the huge records that came out in 1991 you're talking about the teenage fan club yes yes so we kind of if you go back and listen to that episode we broke down in pretty good detail of what was going on. this record coming out in 1991 the bill and ted's movie and soundtrack featuring bands like slaughter winger steve Vai, faith no more prime or king's x and then all of the bands that we talked about in that uh, teenage fan club episode there's a lot of stuff going on you know we're headed in all different kinds of directions we're resolving what happened in the 80s there's you know jane's addiction is influencing a bunch of bands that try to like pivot that in one direction you've got a bunch of other bands like smashing pumpkins and nirvana that are just obliterating the very premise of what rock music is and trying to redefine it and so there's a lot of interesting stuff going on so when you listen to this record in that context i think there's a little adds a little bit more value to it i think you know with time it doesn't I think the songwriting for me doesn't uh 
or actually the lyrics are the what don't hold up well with time. Um, some of the songwriting holds up better than others. I still kind of like the production of this record, though. I, I kind of am a fan of uh, of that sound. I like what the actually like how they use the delay and how the guitar plays off of it. I like the drumming. It's kind of a Pearl Jam tennis kind of style drumming with a lot of cymbals and fills and you know slightly busy and uh, you know fairly dramatic, but at the, at the end of the day, and, and there, I think there's some legitimate hooks on this record. I mean, I think there's some choruses on here that could be, you know, in my notes, I I actually could hear them as being like Matchbox 20 songs, you know, very much like middle of the road, alt rock radio type choruses and verses. Um, the lyrics are just so, I don't know, thin and cliched and just not at all interesting um i think on a couple songs they get away with like running on which is a pretty decent you know higher energy mm-hmm. um, tune that you know the lyrics are okay drinking again they're okay until you get to the chorus and he's singing about i should be home making sweet love <laughs> Yeah. And that's like the big hook of the chorus. You're like, oh, it's a great melody. Why are you saying that? And it, that those the music in that song kind of re- reminded me of like second album Manic Street Preachers. Okay. Or, or that in that song, like it's it very much reminded me of like early British, like hard not hard rock, but like the stuff that like the Manic Street Preachers were doing. <laughs> it was very how about, weird. How about Marion? Or Marion, yeah. Like there's another perfect example, like that yeah. Brit pop. With like slightly more of an edge than it wasn't like the drinking good time yep. Oasis Britpop, but like the more edgier stuff like Marion. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And that that's a yeah, that's interesting because that's an influence I did not pick up on obviously the first time I was listening to this rock this record. And I honestly haven't listened to this in probably geez, twenty years or something. So I was really kind of surprised to hear that. Like uh, track seven, Mama said the chorus doesn't sound like Marion, but the verses a real kind of moody, you know, glassy guitars. And something about the vocal. I was like, wow, this sounds like a, this sounds like a British band. Like, what am I thinking of? And mm-hmm. I picked my brain a little bit, and I was like, I think I'm thinking of Marion. Well, it's three o'clock in the morning, and I haven't gone to sleep. Though she left me without warning The message comes upon me clear Oh, man, it's 
of an interesting, I don't know if it's coincidence or influence or whatever, but thought that was fairly interesting. Um, there's some divergence here where they go into like kind of blues based things, which are just when you mix bad, schlocky blues with bad lyrics, you're not in a good spot. So a song like my opinion, they do that and it's, it's not real great. Um, there's a couple other lean on me. They kind of do that. Um, it kind of comes off sounding like trickster. <laughs> if you remember that band, um, yeah. You know, not good. But I think, you know, for me, I like this band best when they're just, they're, they're, they're in a up-tempo rock format, but they're doing some things that are atypical of um, rock for that time. So uh, drinking again, I love the, um, the, like the delayed muted guitar riff and the verse. Um, I love how there's a lot of drama in that. It kind of builds and, it's a big chorus and kind of pulls back down. Um, it has sort of a dark, slightly dark tinge to it, but super hooky in the choruses. And I think 10,000 Years and Mama Said are their two ballads that they pull off fairly well. You know, I think there's enough melody there that they can pull off kind of a power ballad feel. Um, the lyrics sort of fit okay that way, you know, in that mm-hmm. format. I don't... I, I, I'm a little bit more forgiving, but I felt like a lot of the uh, the rest of the, the record was was slightly painful. Um, reg- even you know, there's some good, there's still some good choruses in there. Even some of these songs that are like, you know, the verses might be a little cringeworthy. But um, a song like "Talking to You" kind of reminded me of a, it has like just unfortunate things like harmonica in it. Um, sounded to me like a great white b-side and then <laughs> the last song for the love is features a riff that is almost a complete rip off of stargazer by deep purple um they like the second half of the riff they change it up a little bit but it is damn close um and then it kind of it's kind of a weird bastardization because it, it, it uses that this deep purple-ish riff and then it goes into a verse that musically sounds like something off Pearl Jam's 10, but lyric vocally, you know, is doing something more from, you know, late 80s, you know, metal or something. So, or, or maybe like Ugly Kid Geo or something like that. So it's a mm-hmm. weird amalgamation of different stuff. There's a couple songs in here that I think were fun to revisit, and it was interesting to listen to. Um, just like I said, from the context of at least I followed the context of the t- time it came out, and 
obviously these this band being a little bit a little bit ahead of their time in some ways and you know i think some of the stuff they were doing like once we went through post grunge post post grunge it sort of transformed back into if you know what i mean like mm-hmm. i kept hearing like rob thomas or matchbox 20 or that sort of you know this soft rock radio version of what grunge became in the mid you know early 2000s mid 2000s right um so i don't know what did you think this is this album is a good argument for not actually seeing the band because it puts looking at the album cover it puts such a stamp on like what i thought this band was going to sound like and then they sort of met that expectation yeah so it when I did hear the little things, like I mentioned, like the mainstream features, or you mentioned Marion, as like sort of popping in, or there's those weird parts where I was like, oh, this is almost like Candlebox, or yeah. um, you know, one of those sort of second tierish grunge bands uh, that have a little bit more metal sound than they probably you know are admitting to. Yeah. Um, it sort of caused a lot of confusion because then there's like other songs. Where and especially with his vocal style, where it's like so blatantly '80s, like you're mentioning, like Trickster and Great White and and those bands, and it's definitely like a second or third tier, you know, '80s pop metal sound on mm-hmm. a lot of the record, and and then they throw in like you mentioned the blues thing in um, Take Me Higher. Mm-hmm. It's got this like almost jealous again Black Crows yeah. kind of riff going on, yeah. and like I I don't mind that. Um, but his lyrics are really, really cliche, and yeah. I just wanted something meatier than what he's singing. Um, and maybe that it's just too all—it's all too shiny and clean, and there's no rough edges, and you know, maybe that his vocal could be like in a lot of ways, like a lot of those 80s bands once they got into a good studio and they were able to make a clean record and and make a really well you know good sounding record um they all kind of started sounding the same and it's what the vocalist was able to do to really sort of separate them um basically you'd either have like an amazing vocalist or an amazing guitar player to sort of separate you from the pack and um they don't really have an amazing vocalist i mean he's fine and he's good for the genre and I, I was a little bit, I guess, kind of let down in the sense with Patrick Sugg because I really liked what he did on that Holy Barbarians record for its, like, originality and for him taking sort of, like, very simple riffs but playing them in such a way that they were super memorable. Whereas on this record, he does some interesting things, but I don't know. I kind of found that I found him to be a lot more bland and a lot more predictable and like you mentioned with the blues riffs and stuff like that like almost every one of these songs i heard i go eh sounds like the black crows Eh, yeah sounds like another band like there wasn't anything where i was like oh this is wow that is he's doing something there that really stands out um with you when you mentioned for the love i mean that's like yeah it has it has a total Seattle-ish metal sound that you know I don't know where these guys were from exactly it's it's sort of an amalgamation of like a whole bunch of different sounds 
that were hitting all together in, in 1981. And this band is like it's sort of the weird encapsulation of all those weird combinations of 80s metal and then alternative sort of transforming plus this odd Britpop uh, influence that I don't even think Britpop existed in 1991. So maybe they were paving the way. I don't know. I don't think anybody in Britain in Britain heard this album. But uh, maybe they found it through the Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey soundtrack like you did. Um, I, have to make, I have to make a quick correction. Okay. Stargate, Stargazers by Rainbow, not Deep Purple. Sorry. Oh, okay. There you go. I want to get that right. Right. Gotcha. So, I, I mean, in terms of production, it does sound really, really good. Um, it's very clean. Um, you can hear everything. The drums sound big. And the guitars sound really crisp. They don't, there's not as much personality to them in the way that Patrick Sugg was playing on that Holy Barbarians record where he would sort of kind of create a unique tone and texture for each song. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is a little more, uh, you mentioned he uses some reverb and delay in certain songs. There's not quite that, I don't know, excitement that I got when I heard that Holy Barbarians album or revisited it. Well, it's not intimate. I mean, that's the problem with that this style of production is that, you know, everything's distant, literally, you know, through right. the use of reverb and delay. And um, while it's big, it, it doesn't sound intimate in your face or right in your ear or just near you. And that I think the production of the, the cult record and the Holy Barbarians record is very much, you know, right, right next to you. You know, it sounds like you're in the music. Um, and I think his his playing benefited from that. I think it's also stripping down, you know, and, and kind of using effects for a particular a very particular purpose. It's, instead of on this record, it sounds like it's just a standard like you know. There's a wash of a bunch of effects over top of all the guitar parts that he plays. Um, there's also some unfortunate things like electric acoustic guitars on this record, and you know some. Not great sounding strings, overproduced and, keyboard yeah, strings, harmonica, just extra things where you just, you know, uh, I don't really think that needs to be there. Um, but one, a couple of funny things though is like um, track two, "Cry All Night." It has once you get to the chorus, it almost has like a posies ish kind of, you know, a power pop kind of feel to it. Um, it's kind of it's a decent song. It's probably I guess of the mid tempo we songs. It's probably my favorite on there. Um, the thing that's really funny about it though is that the intro has this big like guitar riff that never plays any part in the rest of the song, and it's mm-hmm. like a long guitar riff. It's like an electric guitar by itself for like I don't know thirty seconds or something, and then the song builds in and the. The song's mostly like acoustic and then they mix in some electric in the choruses, but that riff never comes back. It like plays no purpose in the song whatsoever. It's kind of, it seems like, why did you do that? <laughs> like, were you trying to make sure the song was never a single or, you know, what, what was the point of, of that whole guitar intro? Um, there's some stuff like that on this record where it's like, it sounds cool, but you're like, why did, what, what point is that serving?
Yeah, and in the inverse, time to let you go is sort of like you again. You mentioned like the power pop. It almost reminds me of like Toad the Wet Sprocket. Yeah, yeah. And then it all of a sudden it like throws in this real heavy part, like two yeah. minutes into the song. That was I a band I, I almost wrote down in my notes too, and was like, "Oh, there it is!" And then it would go, and I'm like, "Well, maybe I'm not hearing it right." So, <laughs> yeah, it was. It's all over the map, and it. I just feel like like grasping on to like different, whole different genres of rock music, and it's not necessarily yeah, all working yeah, on, yeah. on an album together, and especially with this sort of production, which is designed for a stadium. I mean, this is an album that when you hear it, you're like, "Oh, this was a band trying to play." stadiums mm-hmm. and um and open for you know they wanted to be out opening for bullet boys or whatever and it doesn't the, the use of the acoustic guitars in certain songs it doesn't necessarily work you know those those bands used acoustic guitars purely for like ballads they weren't using them in mid-tempo pop songs which is what yeah is going on the, here and some of these aren't real acoustic guitars they're like electric acoustic guitars which elevations yeah, they sound like uh, you just hear the strings essentially. Like you don't hear the like the warmth of the guitar, and it right. ends up just giving this really cheesy, cheesy sound. Yeah. So unfortunately for uh, Joe and Chip, we do not hear quite the same uh, level, or we do not have the same level of enthusiasm for this uh, particular record. Uh, it's, it's quite. It's a. It's an interesting document from 1991 in that it covers a lot of ground, but I don't necessarily think it all works together. I think if you, and we're sort of evaluating it. If you vote, if I, let me, let me come at it this way. If you evaluated this in the context of maybe AOR, just straight ahead, rock, pop, rock music, radio, rock music. Mm hmm. I think it scores a lot higher because the threshold for that, you know, mostly lyrically, it's all pretty cliched and awful, you know. So this, if you, if you, you know, what I mean? if that's your criteria, I think this actually this record probably scores a lot higher. I think the criteria that we're kind of coming from is like a probably more of an alternative rock overall, you know, context, which I think it in light of things we've listened to recently does not hold up, you know, in that context nearly as well. But for people who just love, you know, essentially journey, you know, that kind of thing, like not trying to be anything, but right. Big hooky, you know, powerful rock songs, you know, it's probably, uh, if you grade on that curve, it probably scores pretty well. Okay. Well, Let's grade it then. Uh, <laughs> were the album better EP decent single, Jay? Uh, I'd be fine with an EP. Um, I got I got probably four or five songs from this. I could, it, if you gave me those four or five songs and you didn't show me the album cover and I didn't know anything about the history of the band, I have a feeling I might like it better. Hmm. I, I guess I could. I guess I can yank an EP out of this. Uh, I would stick mostly to the up-tempo stuff. I am not a fan of the slower or mid- and mid-tempo stuff. I like I like when he's blazing on the guitar, whether it matters or not for the whole song. But otherwise, I think there's probably... I would go with like three to four songs, and that's probably my max. That's being kind to uh, 
Neverland. So this was an interesting experiment. We basically jumped immediately into a record that we mentioned from a previous review and uh, decided to check it out based on some people, you know, chatting about it. So uh, maybe we'll try to do that in the future as well. We uh, find a record that has some interesting connections that we can uh, evaluate. We'll try to jump into that for the next week and maybe continue the uh, conversation on that. Especially if one of us owned it. Yes, especially if one sort of us of a, uh... randomly owns a super obscure album that doesn't even have uh, you know much of an online presence at all. Yeah. There's like five bands called Neverland, by the way. So yeah, one of them is like a Japanese uh, a band that. Uh, well, is that the uh, so when you lo- when I load this on iTunes, it, it pulls some album art for me, and it pulls some random album art, like it's some like very colorful kind of cartoony looking yeah, city. The- that's not them. Yeah. But is that the Japanese band? I'm guessing that's the Japanese okay. version. Yeah. So that is our review and uh, revisitation of Neverland. If you have an album for us to review, of course, head on over to digmeoutpodcast.com and hit our request review page. Only a couple slots left for the uh, rest of the year. And then we do our giveaway, our thank you giveaway for uh, all the people who donated and uh, of course you can leave us some positive feedback over at iTunes um, I think in the future what I'm going to do is I'm going to pick a person I'm going to say anybody who leaves feedback during X month say you know December anybody who leaves posit- will get a free they can pick an album for us to review wait so, what? I'm going to say anybody who leaves feedback on iTunes, positive feedback for us on iTunes, I'm going to pick randomly one of those people to do a review. Wow. So would they get a free pick? A free pick. Just for doing a... Just for giving us some... They have to be... You have to... You're going to do a poll. You're going to do a drawing. Yeah. I'm basically going to... I'm going to take... I'm going to, I'm going to go on... A, I'm going to take my phone and I'm mm-hmm. going to film myself writing each person's name on a piece of paper and then I'm going to place all those pieces of paper into some sort of a of a of a, a device like a hat or a cup or a bowl depending on how many names I have and I'm going to shake yeah. it up I'm going to film it all and I'm going to stick my hand in there and I'm going to randomly select one person's name and that person will then be chosen as a free review wow that's a lot of work yes <laughs> all right you're up for it I can handle that level of commitment. So if if you want a chance at a free review, go leave us feedback, and you will have a chance. During the month of December. In the month of December, you will have a chance to get a free review. Yes. I'm in so if there's thing, only so one... I know you have to be careful how you phrase these things. Yes. Uh, well, this isn't. there's no cash involved. There's no prizes. It's simply I'm just, a... Hey, yeah. just watching out for you, Tim. I think you appreciate it. Uh, and to the NSA listening in on this Skype call, uh, you're welcome to uh, contribute as well. Yeah, leave us some feedback. All right, let's uh, let's wrap this sucker up. And uh, for Jay, I'm Tim, and that's it. And we'll be back next week with another episode of Dig Me Out.
Join the conversation about this episode at digmeoutpodcast.com, where you can find links to our Facebook page and Twitter feed, as well as links to our request a review and merchandise pages. Mm -hmm.